0: Well, this last week, I read a short article, maybe some of you read the same one, but it recounts an incident involving a landscaper and a man in a car having a seizure. There's a landscaper walking to work in a residential neighborhood, and while he was walking, he noticed one of the residents of a nearby house driving down the street. But as he glances at the car, he some, sees something's not quite right, and he notices this driver is actually having a seizure. So you know, cars probably swerving all over the place, and, and this driver's having a seizure. And of course, like like we would hope anyone would do when they see an emergency like this happening, this landscaper springs into action to try and get the car stopped so he can save it. Being in a residential neighborhood, he starts screaming for help, thinking that a nearby neighbor would hear him and come help. And to his great surprise, he hears one neighbor yell back, "Get off our lawn! Get the man out of here! Have him die somewhere else!" Now, now not to leave you hanging, the landscaper was eventually able to get the man the help he needed, but obviously the the reason this story is so surprising surprising is not that there is a random man who tried to help someone, but that some random neighbor would actually respond in such an unhelpful way. And it's not just that he was unwilling to help, but that he very much wanted to distance himself from any help or any rescue that could happen. He wanted to withhold mercy. And I couldn't help but notice the similarity because Jonah, too, was a man who wanted to withhold mercy. A prophet who ultimately was offended by where God wanted to extend mercy. And so we come to the book of Jonah, and this morning we'll be in chapter 1, verse 1 through 16. We'll stop at 16. Verse 17 actually fits better the beginning of chapter 2. So we'll get that next time. But as we get into Jonah chapter 1, what we see is an account of the offensive mercy of God the offensive mercy of God. And we'll see that play out in two ways. First, the great escape. And second, the surprising reversal. However, before we get into the text of the book of Jonah, uh, it it does require a little bit of of background in setting the scene. Uh, Jonah, for many, can be a rather obscure book in the Bible. Uh, If you know anything about Jonah, it almost certainly involves his encounter with a fish, uh, which actually is, is a fairly small section of the book. But Jonah falls into the literary genre of prophetic writing. I think it's probably fair to say that that most Christians, foremost Christians, the prophets don't receive as much attention as, as other sections of the Bible. But of course we know the prophetic books are just as inspired as the rest of Scripture and they're therefore no less important. The prophets, you may or may not know, are typically divided into two main categories. There are the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Then there are the 12 minor prophets, not of course in importance, but in size, which are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, where we find books like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and of course, Jonah. We actually don't know much about the author and date of Jonah, um, certainly not as much as most of the other books of the Bible. As to the actual author of Jonah, um, it remains a mystery. Scholars aren't sure who, who exactly wrote it. And it was most likely written somewhere between 750 and 250 B.C. So there's a 500-year chunk for you that somewhere in there. And, of course, the lack of information doesn't mean we, we should question its place in the Bible. The, the book, book of Jonah certainly belongs there. But in terms of where the prophet Jonah falls in the, in the timeline of redemptive history, we'll just do, just do a quick blitz so we can get up to speed. So... We have the garden, the fall, the flood, right? Then kind of a fresh start with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It takes us right into Egypt. And then Moses, Exodus, the law, followed by eventually settling in the, in the promised land. And then we have the different judges, and eventually the kings. You start with Saul, King David. Things, things are going well. And Solomon starts out great, then ends poorly with his reign. In Nine, 930 B.C., the kingdom actually splits, into the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And roughly 100 years after that split, in the northern kingdom, we have the ministry of Elijah, which Jared preached on a while ago. And right around that same time, figures after Elijah's ministry, we have Jonah. And as we continue through the book, I'll fill out some more historical details here and there. But one of the reasons I wanted to give you a quick uh, historical context is because the book of Jonah really doesn't have much at all. So just just bear with me a couple minutes while I I set the context for for a moment. As you can see in the first verse, we're not given much background. All it gives us is that Jonah is a son of Amittai. And even though this is just a little bit of information, it's reasonable to conclude that this is the same Jonah that we find in 2 Kings 14.25, which reads, He... This is referring to the king Jeroboam. He restored Israel's border from Labo-Hemeth, as far as the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from gath For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter for both slaves and free people. There was no one to help Israel. The Lord had not said, he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven. So he delivered them from the hand, by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. So what we discover is that Jonah happened to be the prophet, that God chose to proclaim God's decision to bless Israel and expand its borders during Jeroboam's reign. So when it came to his ministry as a prophet, proclaiming borders, the borders of Israel would be expanding, he had it pretty easy, right? Some, some prophets had to proclaim judgment destruction, exile, but Jonah, he got to proclaim a time of prosperity and expanding borders. Which was no small thing, because the track record of Israel's kings had been horrible, right, and this blessing from God was certainly not deserved. In fact, during the short time of Israel's blessing and expanding the borders of the northern kingdom, two other prophets who you may have heard of, Hosea and Amos, came to Jeroboam with the Lord's message of judgment and doom because of their evil during this time of prosperity. So as you can imagine, Jewish people in later generations, Jonah was probably one of the more popular prophets, because he predicted one of the few times of prosperity in Israel's disappointing and sinful history. Now, all of that may not necessarily be in our minds when we happen to open our Bible to the book of Jonah, but it certainly would have been for any Jewish people reading this account of Jonah for the first time. So much so that they probably would have got really excited right away when they saw that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Our man Jonah, the prophet of prosperity. Starts out great in verse 1. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Great. Let's hear what he has to say. But then things change a bit in verse 2. Because it turns out this isn't a message for Israel. But Nineveh. Jonah, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh. And here we've got to pause again, fill out some uh, some detail about Nineveh, because this city is a crucial part of Jonah. Nineveh was most likely the largest city of the Assyrian Empire, which is located in the area of modern-day Iraq. And we'll cover more details later, but, but for now it's important to keep in mind two things about Nineveh. First, there was constant political tension with Israel and the Assyrian Empire. They made Israel pay tribute and were actually... They made him pay tribute and were a constant threat to Israel throughout the life of Jonah. They actually would, would eventually conquer Israel. And uh, so, so as you can imagine, there's, there's certainly some political tension here, some, some unfriendly feelings. And the second thing, Assyria, where Nineveh is the, the main city, was one of the most violent and cruel empires of ancient times. The, the things they would do to those they conquered in battle are, are horrifying And I won't go into detail. But suffice it to say, they would, with great pride and intention, intimidate other nations with what they did to their victims. One historian said, Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. So, keep that in the back of your mind as we look at how this book starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. So here we have the prophet Jonah. He's called to go to the city of Nineveh, which right away would strike Jonah, or any Hebrew reading this, as odd. Uh, this isn't what prophets of God usually do. They, they go to another nation and preach. Usually, even if the message is, has something to do, or is about another nation, the audience is the people of God. So this is very unique that God would send his prophet to another nation. What is Jonah instructed to do? He's told to preach against the great city. He must condemn Nineveh. So this this isn't a vacation for Jonah. He must go there and express the holy wrath of God against this city. Their evil is so intense, so wicked, that divine intervention is required. Their evil has come up before me, God says. And of course here we wonder, Well, what's Jonah going to do? What is this prophet whose track record is preaching about the coming blessing and prosperity of God's people? What's he going to do? And initially, we might think, well, yeah, go stick it to him, Jonah. Israel and Assyria don't, don't get along. Surely Jonah would hate the thought of going to Nineveh unless he gets to condemn them. That'd be nice. Let them know their time is up. I mean, after all, this is the prophet who preaches about Israel's soon-to-come blessings, right? He shouldn't have a problem condemning another nation. Unless, unless he knows something about God's character. And he knows God's word. And he does. Jonah knows that God is just. He'll punish the guilty and can't stand sin. But he also knows that God is compassionate. Remember Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Did you know that first verse, verse 6, is the most repeated verse in the Bible? The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. This is God's character 101. And then there's Jeremiah 18, 5 through 8. And as I read this, think about this in the context of Jonah going to preach against Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to me, house of Israel. Can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I plan to do to it. In other words, if God says he's going to destroy a nation and the nation repents, God will relent and be merciful. So Jonah knew if he went to Nineveh, it may very well not end in condemnation and destruction. But mercy and rescue. Because if Nineveh repents, God would relent and have mercy. And Jonah had no time for this kind of offensive mercy. I know my God too well to bring this message to our enemy. God is just and holy and destroys the nations as he sees fit, but also the he's also compassionate, patient, and rescues those who don't deserve it. And the thought of Nineveh repenting and turning to God, Jonah says, nope, not on my watch. So he runs. He decides he's going to flee to Tarshish. So he goes to a nearby port town, Joppa, pays his fare and boards a ship headed to Tarshish. And it's probably no surprise, but Tarshish is nowhere near Nineveh. Nineveh, over in modern-day Iraq, roughly you know east of Israel. But it's a little more difficult to know exactly where Tarshish is, um, where it was located. But but the most the most likely location is southern Spain. Which, is so Jonah, here's what God of Nineveh. It's like two thousand some miles in the wrong direction. So Jonah, here's what God says. He says, nope. Not going to obey. And this isn't disobedience via laziness. It's, it's not like Jonah had a long week and he just decided he's, he's going to stay home and relax. No, no, he's very intentionally putting a whole lot of effort, spending a good chunk of money to board a ship and physically distancing himself from where he was called to go. Outright defiance. And of course, his intention to physically distance himself in such a dramatic way from where he was commanded to go, is just a picture of Jonah's spiritual state. And we even see that in verse 3. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Now Jonah knows full well he cannot escape the presence of God. God is everywhere, present all the time, what what theologians call God's omnipresence. Jonah is a prophet of the living God, and he knows he can't elude God. So when this speaks of fleeing from the Lord's presence, it just reinforces his desire to remove himself from the place God had just revealed his words to him. He doesn't want to be by where God's words came to him. And isn't that how it is with sin? Have you ever noticed it in your life? I've, I've noticed it in mine. The more defiant, the more disobedient we are, the more entangled in sin we find ourselves, the easier it becomes to avoid God's word, which puts us in a very dangerous place. So what does Jonah do when he's confronted with, with what God sees, with what he sees as God's offensive mercy? He runs. He escapes. The offensive mercy of God so we have the great escape, and now the surprising reversal. So Jonah's made his decision. The word of God comes to him, tells him exactly what to do, exactly where to go. He gets on a ship heading the opposite direction. And in verse 4 to 16, we have an account of what all happens while Jonah is on the ship. The narrative to moves very, continues to move very quickly. We're not exactly sure how long Jonah was on the ship, but probably not too long after it departed, um, the crew and everyone on the ship find themselves in the midst, in the midst of a raging, horrible storm. Which, which happened, right? Storms happen, Is, any sailor worth their salt would, would have been in storms, and know how to navigate, navigate storms at sea, but this isn't just any storm, and it's certainly not, of jo- not part of Jonah's plan. And so far, up till now, we, we've just heard about Jonah's actions but now we're going to hear about God's actions. And just as abruptly as Jonah got up to flee from God, God very abruptly throws a great storm onto the sea. The typical grammatical construction is even changed, placing the the subject, the Lord, at the beginning of the verse to make sure we know exactly who is responsible for this storm. So as Jonah flees... The Lord responds, with a storm so severe that the ship threatens to break apart. And not surprisingly, the crew on the ship, they're fearful. These poor sailors, cluelessly thrown in the spotlight as actors in a drama unfolding between a disobedient prophet and the Lord of the universe. So these sailors are, are fearful, so much so that each sailor starts crying out to their god or gods. Suddenly, every sailor on the ship is pleading to their God for rescue. And nothing happens. The storm rages on. So in in, in their continued panic, the sailors do really, the the only thing they can do at this point to try and save themselves and their ship. In order to lighten the ship and give them a fighting chance, they start throwing cargo into the sea. So we have God who throws throws a storm at the sea. The sailors throwing cargo at the sea. And where is Jonah during all this? I mean, surely he's doing his part to try and help save the ship, right? Nope. Jonah's sleeping. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. And and here's where we start to see the the literary sophistication of this little book. Have you noticed the the direction that Jonah's going? At the beginning, God says to Jonah, get up. Go to Nineveh. The evil has come up before me. So Jonah got up. And once he flees to Tarshish, everything goes downhill. After he decides to flee from the Lord's presence, where does he go? Yes, he goes straight west, away from Nineveh, but where else? Jonah went down. Not up, but down down to Joppa to find a ship. Then he went down into the ship to go with them. And now he's in the midst of a raging storm. Jonah has gone down into the lowest part of the vessel and stretched himself out and fallen into a deep sleep. Well, how nice for Jonah. Except that he keeps going down. Jonah is descending deeper and deeper into disobedience. And as the author points out with their word choice, this just highlights the alarming spiritual direction of Jonah's life. So it's certainly worth, worth asking ourselves, is there any area of our lives where we're spiritually heading down? Is there any area of continual disobedience that is slowly moving us further and further away from God? And the further one moves from God, the less alarming the consequences become. Right? the less alar- alarming your di- disobedient and sinful actions become. So the storm rages on, but Jonah had gone below, far away from God, unaware of impending peril. He's taken it upon himself to stretch out in a nice comfy place and go to sleep. Not just a quick nap. And he, he's in a deep sleep, which, which he'd have to be, to sleep through all the commotion going on on the deck above, the ship swaying rocking back and forth in the sea but Jonah unaware of it all continues to sleep meanwhile the captain of the ship goes below deck probably to take stock of what else they could throw overboard i mean they're 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 chucking cargo trying to save the ship so he goes down to see okay what else what else can we toss he finds jonah sleeping and it's no surprise the captain approaches Jonah, and as you can imagine, the captain's like, Dude, what, what are you doing? How can you be sleeping right now? And even the word choice of the captain is perfect for Jonah. Because the two commands he gives Jonah match exactly the two commands he heard from God. Get up! Cry out to Nineveh! And now we have this pagan sailor who wakes Jonah up by laying, Get up! Cry out to your God. And just to lay it on even more, the captain wants Jonah to cry out to his God to save them from the storm. The exact, exact storm that God, that Jonah's God very intentionally threw at them because of Jonah. I mean, w- wouldn't you love to see Jonah's face as he wakes up and starts to realize what's going on? He has this pagan sailor unknowingly repeating God's commands to him, telling him to pray to the God who made the storm for relief from the storm. Now the text doesn't tell us, but I would assume at this point Jonah's starting to second guess his recent decisions. And yet, as the narrative continues to unfold, do you notice what Jonah does not do? He doesn't call on God. He doesn't pray. You see that? He knows he screwed up but he's not willing to admit it yet and again if we're willing to to be instructed by seeing what not to do there's there's so much for us to learn here because i'll at least speak for myself so often it's the times when i'm most frustrated most self-justified in my actions most defiant most defensive those are the times when i am most likely not to pray and cry out for help when in reality What I need most in those times is to go before God in prayer asking for help and confessing my sin. Are we willing to to let our own sin and defensiveness stand in the way of drawing near to God like Jonah? Or do we admit we are wrong and draw near in our time of need? What controls us throughout the day? A desire to have it our way and always be right and continue in sin? Or a desire to be near to God? Jonah shows us you don't get to have both. How quick are we to turn near when we find ourselves distant from God? And then by verse 7, apparently all the prayers, or lack thereof, from Jonah, are not working, so it's time to take a different approach. The sailors have been crying out to their gods. They've been throwing cargo overboard, and nothing's changed. storm is relentless. They've got to try something else, otherwise a ship will go down, And if any of them survive, it'll be because they're holding on to the cargo they just threw overboard. So they get together and they say, look, this storm is so horrible and so relentless. Surely it must be that someone on this ship has offended their God so much that this is happening. Someone on this ship is to blame. And since no one fessed up to anything, they they decide to cast lots, which may seem a bit odd to us. But this was a very common way in the ancient world used to discern divine will, and it was used by the Israelites. We see it in Numbers and Joshua. And Basically, they, they probably had some small stones or little bones or something. They would that were marked in a, in a way that represented everyone present. Then they probably put them in a, some sort of container and they would shake it, and whichever one fell out, that's that's who the lot fell to. That's who who the lot fell to. So they do this. They cast lots and, surprise, surprise, singles out Jonah. And of course, once Jonah is singled out, um, they, they come with questions, right? Five of them, to be exact. The sailors want to know. They want to know some info. So, first, who's to blame? Second, what is your business? What's, what's your occupation? Third, where are you from? Where's your hometown? What's your country? And fifth, Who are your people? Or what is your race? And this series of questions was designed to try and figure out what specific deity Jonah had offended. Jonah had been singled out as the one who has a target on him, but now the sailors are trying to get as much information about Jonah as they can so they can figure out which of Jonah's gods he offended. Which makes sense from the sailors' perspective. They all had more than one gods they, they served which depended largely on where they were from, what they did, who their people were. So as far as they knew, Jonah served multiple gods, and they needed to figure out which one is mad. And finally, for the first time in the book, Jonah speaks. Jonah says something. And while he doesn't doesn't necessarily answer every one of their questions, he does tell them exactly what they need to know. He just lays it all out there for them. Jonah's been cornered. It's time to fess up. Verse 9, he answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And the mood changes quickly. There's a major turning point in the narrative. See, many foreigners referred to Israelites as Hebrews. So Jonah lets him know he's, he's an Israelite, Lord of the heavens. And just to gods, Jonah worships the God. Lord of the heavens, and just to correct any potential confusion these sailors may have as to which god or gods have jurisdiction over different regions, Jonah makes sure they know his god is lord over them all. He is the god of the heavens, the one who made the sea and the dry land. And with this news, the sailors are overcome with fear. And and apparently Jonah had told them at some point during the conversation that he was fleeing God. So the sailors respond with a question. What is this you've done? What is this you've done, Jonah? And it's a question we see elsewhere in Scripture, mostly in Genesis. And when it's used in Scripture, it's always used to reflect moral outrage at what the speaker or the asker of the question Perceives as foolish behavior. Can you guess where else we see this? This exact question God asks Eve after she confesses to eating the fruit. What is this you've done? God knew exactly what Eve did. And the sailors already know that Jonah is fleeing the God of the universe. So really it's not as much a question as much as it is them saying to Jonah, you fool. What have you done? You foolish man. And after they asked Jonah and kind of put him in his, asked Jonah this question, kind of put him in his place, next on their agenda is, well what do we do now? They they figured out it's Jonah's fault. They got him to confess that he's, you know, the God he serves. And as they are all currently still aware and experiencing, the violent storm still rages on They now know that the the God Jonah serves is powerful. And so they point blank ask Jonah, All right, man, you you tell us. What should we do to you so the sea calms down? Because this this storm, is still an issue. And it's getting worse and worse. And Jonah, even though it's your fault, you've had all the answers so far. So you tell us. What do we do to make this stop? And Jonah responds, "Listen,, I, I know I'm to blame for this. I totally get that you you know you need to stop the storm soon, otherwise we'll all die. I hear you on that. So he tells them, "Pick me up, and throw me over. The storm will calm down." Now I don't know what the sailor's expected to hear, but Jonah says, "Listen, guys, your best bet is to toss me overboard." Now, the text doesn't tell us the internal thoughts of Jonah at this point. So we're not completely sure um, what he's thinking or or what his angle is here. But I do think it's fair to say that Jonah did realize it was his fault. And frankly, he was was probably surprised the the sailors hadn't thrown him over already. And while he may not uh, like the thought of just throwing himself off the ship, which, which he could have done but apparently doesn't want to do, he's willing to succumb to the sailors' hands if they throw him off. But we don't know for sure what he's thinking. But here's what we do know. Jonah could have at any time while on the ship got down on his knees before God and prayed for help and confessed his sin. And he doesn't. He doesn't do it. It may very well have stopped the storm, but no, Jonah would rather be thrown over in one more act of rebellion than to draw near to God in prayer and confession. Which is a good reminder to us, knowing that that knowing what you did and that you did something wrong is not the same as true confession and repentance. So even now, as, as, as we can think of the different strong we, sins we struggle with, let this be a reminder to us that it's it's not enough to know you're wrong. It's not enough just to know that you've sinned. It's a good start, an essential start, but it's not enough. True confession involves seeing your sin, then turning away from your sin and instead turning toward God and the gracious, pr- gracious provision he has provided in his son to deal with that sin appropriately. Jonah would rather take a dive. He's just not there yet. He knows he's wrong, but he's not ready to confess. Throw me over, guys. And these sailors, I mean, they're like, well, not quite yet. Let's, let's try one more time to row to land so Jonah doesn't have to die. They they, they don't want to take this man's life. They don't want to have to throw him over. They don't want him to die. And I mean, I I don't know about you, but through through this first chapter, I find myself rooting more and more for these sailors and less and less for Jonah. And and this is is the surprising reversal. It's, It's the sailors, not God's prophet, that are acting more like men of God. Which is the exact effect the author intended. For any Israelite reading this, they would have been, this would have been so unexpected. All the way through this first chapter, surprise after surprise, God's mighty prophet, a man of God, keeps doing everything wrong. And meanwhile, the sailors, they're the ones telling Jonah to call on his God. They're the ones actually demonstrating legitimate fear of God. They're the ones showing mercy to Jonah, the prophet who refused to let the mercy of God come to Nineveh. I mean, These sailors are great, but, but try as they may, they just can't get this ship back to land. They've exhausted every option. They, they've, they've come to terms with the fact, we, we've got to throw Jonah over or we're all going to die. So the decision's made. They've got to throw Jonah over. But before they do, look at this, it's so great. Before they do, they pray. God's prophet, God's mouthpiece for revelation is over by himself pouting in a puddle of arrogance and defiance and sin while the pagan sailors pray. And not to their old useless gods, but to the Hebrew God, the God that they now fear, the God of heavens, the God who made the sea and the land, the God who has caused this storm they are currently in they will pray to the God of Jonah. Don't worry, Jonah. We've got it. We'll go ahead and pray to your God. So verse 14, they call out to the Lord. Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. This is a very different type of prayer than the ones they offered earlier. No longer are they praying to their capricious and pathetic gods who are unable to do anything about the storm. Now they pray to the one true God. And as they pray, the first thing on their mind when they pray is still the fact that they fear their life. They fear for their life. If they don't throw Jonah over, they'll surely die. But now that they've decided that they need to throw Jonah over, I mean, what, what else can they do? They don't want to perish because God holds them responsible for Jonah's death. So they say, please God, don't let us perish because of this man. They don't, want to, they don't want God to hold them accountable for Jonah's life. So they plead their case for innocence with respect to the impending death of Jonah. And then the last part of their prayer, we, we see a stunning confession on the behalf of these sailors. They say, for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. In other words, they, they recognize the sovereign hand of God through this entire ordeal. They recognize his power and control and end their prayer with an acknowledgement of God's hand through all of us. All of it. How amazing is that? In the midst of a storm. But then it's time to do what they, they really don't want to do, but need to. They've, got to, they've done everything they can and now they've, they've got to throw Jonah over. So they pick up Jonah and throw him into the sea. And the sea stops its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. After they throw Jonah in, the storm stops immediately. The sea stops its raging, which at this point probably wasn't a huge surprise to the sailors, but it was still miraculous. And here they are once again seized by a great fear. But do you notice a slight change? Way way back in verse 5, the sailors were afraid afraid back in verse 10 the men were seized with a great fear but here in verse 16 this fear has a name they didn't just fear now they feared the living god this is a very different fear than the one they had earlier now they're over, overwhelmed with a good right and legitimate fear of god they recognize the power and complete control of god and are so overwhelmed by his mercy in saving their lives that they offer sacrifice and make vows now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they, they did that right then and there. Um, they, they may have waited until they got back to land where they had things to sacrifice. But however and whenever it happened, the compulsion to do so came from very different hearts than we saw at the beginning of the chapter. From pagans who prayed to many gods to sailors convinced by the almighty power and mercy of the true God who they now fear, pray to, and worship. I mean, what a What a transformation. What a reversal. The prophet of God who couldn't get over his own stubbornness to draw near to God is now sinking in the sea and the pagan sailors are doing all the things Jonah should have done. Fearing God, praying to God, and worshiping God. And while it's encouraging to see the the stunning reversal of the sailors, it can be discouraging to see Jonah, God's prophet, fail so miserably. I mean, in chapter 1, Jonah looks bad. It's just pathetic. But then again, we're not called to to put our trust and hope in any of God's prophets. We're called to put our trust in the one true perfect prophet, Jesus Christ. Jonah is just like us, a failure who can't save himself. So as as we see the repeated failures of Jonah, we're reminded of the, the prophet, Jesus Christ, who did not fail. When called to go on a mission of mercy, Jonah ran away because it was difficult. Jesus ran toward the mission, knowing it would cost him his life. When confronted with the raging sea, Jonah woke up to fear, but refused to call out to God. Jesus woke up and was the God who called out to the storm, stop, and it stopped. When prayer was needed, Jonah refused to pray. Jesus willingly prayed continually, even while on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When confronted with people who needed rescue, Jonah is willing to be sacrificed so a few sailors can live because he knows he's guilty and it's his fault. Jesus is willing to be sacrificed even though he has no guilt so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation can be saved. If you're like me, you probably see a little bit more of yourself in Jonah than you'd like to admit. We can be disobedient. We can run from God at times. We can be distant from God. We can fail to pray to God. We can ignore God's word. We can put our desires above God's. The sailors didn't know it, but even though Jonah was thrown into the sea, God wasn't quite done with Jonah. Remember the prayer of the sailors? Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood. God would spare Jonah. But more importantly, there is another man that God would not spare so that many lives could be saved and his own son, Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we have hope, not in some wayward prophet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we can learn from Jonah, that we can learn from the sailors, and that as we do, we would find ourselves more and more eager to run toward you and your word. Amen.